unexpectedly changing the key of a song is one of the most dramatic things that a songwriter can do. A key change is more technically known as a modulation, and it's a neat trick, really. You don't have to write a new section, you don't have to add new instruments, you just take the whole thing up a step, and everything sounds a lot more exciting. I love a good key change as much as the next guy, but I wonder what the horns think of them. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I am your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music that changes keys, and music that doesn't change keys, and sometimes music that has no key in the first place. On this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the absolute strongest songs of all time, with what is arguably the strongest key change ever. So grab a seat, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. I'm really excited to get into this episode's song. Before we do, a couple things. First of all, Instagram. You ever heard of it? Well, hey, I've started using it again. I've had a long dormant Instagram account. I don't use Facebook anymore. I kind of got myself off of social media for a little while there. But I have been using it recently and I've been having a pretty good time. So if you're an Instagram user and you would like occasional musical stuff from me, shots from the studio, shots from around Portland, and occasionally strong songs related picks and teases for upcoming episodes, you can follow me. It's Kirk underscore Hamilton and I'll put a link for that in the show notes. We are coming up on the one-year anniversary of Strong Songs, which is pretty wild to think about it. I've been doing this show for almost a year. Thank you so much to everyone who's been listening from the very beginning and to everyone who has joined us along the way. It has been more fun than I could have possibly imagined. I've learned so much, met a lot of cool people, and listened to a lot of good music. In honor of that anniversary, next episode will be a little bit different looking back on the year that was, so look forward to that. Alright, it's time to get into this episode's Strong Song, which, as I mentioned, is inarguably one of the strongest songs ever written. And while I know I could say something to that effect about just about every song I've ever focused on in this show, this one's a little bit different. And it's for a reason that will actually be underlined by the structure of this episode, which is also going to be a little bit different. Let's cut right to it. This song is a classic goodbye song, and that's because it's not an anguished, sad goodbye. It's not tearful. It's not an angry kiss-off. No, it's a loving goodbye. It's the way that you say goodbye to someone when you still feel tenderly toward them. And when that's the case, what else can you really say to them but this? Yes, on this episode of Strong Songs, we will be talking about one of the greatest and certainly most enduring songs written by one of the greatest songwriters of our age, Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. Memories, that's all I am taking. But we're not just going to talk about that first version, which reached number one the year it was released in 1974. We're also going to talk about the second version she released in 1982. Part 
1982 version also made it to number one on the country charts, which is no small feat. But you know, we've kind of done that before on this show. We've talked about two different versions of the same song. So why not talk about three different versions of the same song? Because it would be impossible to talk about I Will Always Love You without talking about Whitney Houston's show-stopping 1992 version. a song like this endure to the extent that this one has? What can drive a song to the top of the charts three separate decades in a row? What can lead to so many different vocal interpretations, so many different covers? What is it that makes this song so great? And more broadly, what is it that makes a great song great? I'm thrilled to finally talk about Dolly Parton, one of my favorite songwriters, and not only that, but to also talk about one of my favorite singers, Whitney Houston. We have got a lot of ground to cover in this episode, and I'm excited to get into it. Before we do, though, I want to make a recommendation for all of you. If you listen to this show, you probably already know about the podcast Dolly Parton's America. It's being created by WNYC in New York. It's hosted by Radiolab's Jad Abumrad, and it is really good. It's a limited series. They talk to Dolly. It's produced just amazingly well. It's just, it's so well done. I can't say enough good about it. And if you like this episode, and if you like this show, I pretty much guarantee that you will like Dolly Parton's America. Now, the show focuses on Parton's life, and the second episode is actually all about the writing of this song, of I Will Always Love You. And it's mostly a biographical story, though it does get into her music, and it focuses a lot on her lyrics, which she's an incredible lyricist. So it's really cool to kind of understand her worldview through the words that she wrote into her songs. I Will Always Love You was written by Dolly Parton in 1973. It was released on her album Jolene in 1974. And the song is written as a, is a good goodbye, a sort of a fond goodbye to a man named Porter Wagner, who if you follow country music, you probably know who Porter Wagner is. But if you don't, he was a really big deal in country music, like back in the 1960s. And he was kind of the guy who gave Dolly Parton her break. He had a very popular TV show as kind of a country music review, and he had her on as what was kind of called his gal singer. You know that was the last thing on the mind. And she would sing, they would sing duets together, and he introduced the world to her, and then the world completely fell in love with her, and it became clear over time that she wasn't just a great singer and a great stage presence, she was this incredible songwriter, and she kept writing song after song after song, and pretty soon she'd become a big enough deal that she wanted to go solo. So I Will Always Love You is kind of her way of saying goodbye to Porter, and as she tells it, she walked into his office and just sang the song to him after she wrote it, to tell him, okay, I'm leaving, I really, it's time for me to go do my thing. I hope life treats you kind And I hope that you have all that you ever dreamed of She speaks very fondly of Wagner now, but it's pretty clear that at the time there was definitely some ego stuff going on. Her star was becoming much brighter than his, and she was, you know, ready to go do her own thing, and he was kind of struggling with that. So in a way, this song is not just a great song and a really lovely sentiment to share with a person who, you know, gave you so much and who you care about. It's also kind of a very canny act of diplomacy. Um, It's a way of saying, you know, 
I really need you to let me go and for this to be okay. And so here I'm being so generous to you because we did have so many good times together. And that to me is actually a very Dolly Parton thing that it works on these multiple levels. And hearing her tell the story on Dolly Parton's America was really cool and gave me a new appreciation for that way that the song works, that it's both a fond farewell and also kind of a canny way of getting someone to let you go. Let's start with just the musical aspects of this song. I Will Always Love You is a very simple song. I think Dolly Parton is very good at writing songs that are harmonically and melodically pretty simple, but still really, really strong and distinct. And I Will Always Love You is a great example of that style of songwriting. It basically revolves around four chords, and they're four chords that'll be pretty familiar to you if you're at all familiar with pop music. Um, This song is in A, they do it in A flat, the 1982 version is in A flat, um, but Whitney Houston and Dolly Parton both sang it in A in 1974 and in 1992, so we'll basically talk about it in A. So this song is in A, there are four chords, and those are, there's the one, A major, there's the six minor, which is F sharp minor, there's the four chord, which is D major, And there's the five chord, which is E major. So one, six, four, and five, which you may recognize as the four chords, the four chords that make up that one chord progression that we've talked about many times. It's the chord progression that plays behind the chorus of, you know, like, don't stop believing or let it go, to use a song that I've talked about on this show. Um, And that chord progression is a slightly different arrangement of these four chords than I Will Always Love You uses. I Will Always Love You, the chorus to this song goes one, six, four, five. And the version that's in most pop songs goes one, five, six, four, like this. But it's the same four chords, and you can see how, you know, just rearranging them slightly, it gives it slightly a different a different flow, a different feeling to the to the way the chords move from one to the next, but it is those same four chords. So that's the chorus, but the verse is actually the same four chords in the same order. It's just kind of the pacing is different. It stays on the one chord a little bit longer at the beginning, so it stays on that A. Then it goes down to the F sharp, so the first part is kind of more drawn out, but it still just goes one, six, four, five. So the verse and the chorus are actually very similar. So we're on the one here. Then we walk up to the sixth. Then it walks down past the five to the four, and then the five. So there's some passing tones in there. It's all a little bit different, but it's basically the same chords in the same order, which means that I Will Always Love You is kind of just this one chord progression that's, you know, reimagined a couple different ways, but that's really all it is, and it's not a very distinct chord progression on its own. Okay, so what about the melody? Well, the melody is actually really simple, too. Uh, Let's take the melody on the chorus, which is the most iconic and memorable part of the song. If you take the words away and take away the performance, the melody is very, very simple if you play it on its own. It's really, it's just three notes. So those three notes are A, B, and G sharp in the key of A. So A is just the one, the most basic note that you can play. And that's really the note that most of the melody uh, happens on. It just it starts right up on that A. Sometimes it goes up to the B. And sometimes it goes down to the G sharp, specifically on the E chord, on the five chord, because that's the chord that has a G sharp in it. But really, it's kind of just one note almost. I mean, it you know, the B and the G sharp kind of encircle the main note of the melody, but it's just that A sort of held beautifully and maintained 
maintained and then slightly ornamented upon, but mostly just held. So listen to Dolly sing it from the original 1974 version again, and pay attention for the way that it's mostly that A, the way that it's mostly the same note, but also listen for which words cause the note to change. So if you notice, it mostly stays put on the A during the first part of that statement. I will always is really these drawn out notes on an A. Briefly goes down a half step on the always, but mostly stays on the A. But then, love you. It goes up to that B for the word love. And I think that that is so subtle and so carefully placed, but so perfect. And is a reason, you know, maybe the reason why this chorus works as well as it does, despite being so quote unquote musically simple. carries you forward on this sort of gentle tide of her voice and then just really gently lifts you into the resolution at the end of the phrase. It's really beautiful. It's simple, but it's also subtle and sophisticated. It's the kind of thing that Dolly Parton is very good at as a writer. She's not doing a lot of stuff that's harmonically wild. She's not writing a lot of melodies that are really vertical or angular or going in weird places. She's just so good at putting the perfect word on the perfect note in the perfect place to have the kind of maximum impact and to create the most perfectly beautiful sound. In this case, that word just happens to be the word love. So they do the verse, they do the chorus, they do the verse again, they do a second chorus. But then after that second chorus, there's one more verse, and Dolly actually speaks this verse. It's sort of a spoken word verse that adds a level of drama and kind of heartfelt feeling to the song that is a really important part of what makes it work, mostly because how it sets up the final chorus, but also just how well it works on its own and how it kind of brings you into her a little bit. I hope life treats you kind and I hope that you have all that you ever dreamed of and I wish you joy and happiness but above all of this I wish you love man I love that verse and it's partly because she so effortlessly shifts gears out of singing mode and into speaking mode you know it's this kind of exaggerated way of speaking it's a little bit theatrical but it's totally believable I believe her in that moment it almost really feels like she's talking to me and I think that the way that she then shifts gears out of her speaking voice and back into her singing voice is really cool and indicative of something really special about Dolly Parton's singing so the way that she's delivering the spoken word it's kind of paced out almost rhythmically like it's like she could have sung it but she's just speaking the words instead like there was a melody written that she could have sung these words over but she is choosing to speak them so the delivery sounds kind of like this and i hope that you have all that you ever dreamed of So she talks through most of the verse that way, but then at the very end, she just seamlessly transitions back. She kind of gear shifts back into her singing voice, and there's no perceptible difference. It's like she was talking to you, and then she's just singing to you. And thinking of that story of her sitting down across from Porter and singing the song to him, you can feel almost like you're him, like you're receiving that message from her, the way that she talks and then just begins singing, and it's the most natural thing in the world. 
and I wish you joy and happiness. But above all of this, I wish you love. And I... I mean, that is that is really hard to do to go from a speaking voice to a singing voice to really singing out like that so smoothly that you almost don't realize that she's shifted gears because you didn't feel the gear shift. You know, uh, to make a slightly maybe dated reference, her left foot is very good at disengaging the clutch of her voice, and that I think is something that. I have appreciated more and more over the years about Dolly Parton's singing is how effortless it is. She just, she's kind of always singing in a way, even when she's speaking. If you listen to her in interviews, sometimes she'll just start singing a song as she's speaking. And it's that same feeling of just a total, like a seamless shift into singing because she was kind of always singing. A big part of Dolly Parton's thing is that she's such a storyteller and all of her songs are kind of stories about her past. She's always telling stories. And you can hear that in the way that she performs. You know, a lot of times it's she kind of casts a spell because she's going between this singing and speaking voice that's just sort of always very present and always kind of carrying you along. Uh, a really good example of that is actually the song Applejack. It's the second track on her 1977 album, New Harvest First Gathering. And she just immediately goes into this story. You know, this is something she did so often, but I really love it on this track. He lived by the apple orchard in this little old orchard shack. His real name was Jackson Taylor, but I called him Applejack. It's a zone she sits in so comfortably. It's not quite singing and it's not quite speaking. It's kind of in between and it just carries you along so that when she starts singing, you're right there with her. Now, of course, this wasn't something Dolly Parton invented. This kind of song storytelling has been around as long as folk music, but it is something that she arguably perfected. And as much as it's about this easy sensibility, this way of welcoming in the listener, it's actually not at all easy to do. So in terms of her singing, it's interesting to listen to the 1982 version of I Will Always Love You. The song was already a huge Dolly Parton song. You know, it, was a, it had been a number one hit. It was really well known. And she re-recorded it for a movie she was starring in in 1982, a film adaptation of the hit Broadway musical The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And when she released this version, it yet again went to the top of the charts. It's the same great song with the same basic roadmap. You know, the, the each section is placed in the same order, but she performs it differently and it's arranged a little bit differently in some interesting ways. Now, the movie itself is a musical and she performs this song in the movie as a musical number, though it's a slightly different version than the one that was released on the radio and the one that we're looking at in this episode. That said, the performance still has a kind of a more dramatic quality to it, and I do think that a lot of that drama comes from the fact that this is from a musical. Check it out. Let's listen to that first verse from the 1982 version of the song. Man, I love that harmonica. Let's just talk about that. I mean, right there, same lyrics, same chords, same basic melody. Like I mentioned, we're down a half step, so it's an A flat, but whatever, same difference. But it's such a dramatically different vocal performance. Just going with the first few phrases. Here's the original. If I should stay. And here's the 1982 version. If I 
It's already subtly more elaborate in the later version, but let's go to that next phrase. Here's the original. I would only be in your and here's the second version. It's really cool because we basically get to hear what it sounds like for a singer who wrote a song and then perfected it and then doubtless performed it live hundreds of times and then re-records it with all that confidence and all that experience singing the song, you know, forming it into all these different things in all these subtle little ways over the years and then re-recording it with the benefit of those eight years of performing it and kind of just having more fun or like playing around. There's already one definitive version of this song, might as well record it and try some different things. That can continues throughout this first verse. She keeps adding ornamentation and just messing around with the melody in ways that work really well and sound beautiful, but are significantly more involved than what she did the first time she recorded it. And so I'll go, and yet I know that I think of you each step of Oh man, um, I love that stage whisper, the way she says, and yet. And yet, I know. <laughs> so like I said, this was a musical, and while this version of the song isn't directly being performed to Burt Reynolds' character, she sings this song to Burt Reynolds in the movie, and I think that energy kind of carries over and is one of the reasons that this performance is so much more dramatic. Though Dolly's really kind of just turning up the knobs on some things that were already there in the original version. She has this theatrical but believable delivery that not many people can pull off, and really nobody can pull off quite like Dolly Parton can, and she really leans into that in this version. This 1982 version functions actually as an interesting middle point between Whitney Houston's 1992 version and Dolly Parton's original 1974 version. The original 1974 version is very much a straightforward country recording. You know, the sound, the way that it's mixed, the instrumentation is very country. This 1982 version is a lot schmaltzier and it's got more pop to it. In particular, actually, the pop itself in the Strong Songs Thump Pop Sizzle Groove Breakdown, the pop that's happening on that chorus is a cross stick on a snare drum that just that like it just hits in this perfectly reverberant way and while there is cross stick on the original it's mixed and produced in such a different way that it just sounds totally different the pop is much more poppy So, you know, that more pop music drum beat and that solo harmonica, these are all elements that actually the Whitney Houston version would take and expand on even more. But it's cool to note that Dolly Parton had those same elements and she introduced them to her own song in the 1982 version before, you know, 10 years before Whitney Houston's version. This version has a kind of pop backbeat groove. This version has a solo instrument flitting in and out of the vocals. It's got a lot of those elements and that's pretty cool. So the spoken word section is back in force in this 1982 version, and I love how Dolly does it, particularly at the end, because she just cranks the drama up to 11 and delivers it so perfectly. Check this out. Oh, I do wish you joy, and I wish you happiness, but above all this, I wish you love. I will always love you. 
like, oh my God, are you serious? I'm getting emotional even just recording this and having listened to that. What a delivery. Uh, it's such a, it's such an escalation from the drama of the first version, which was already pretty dramatic. But instead of coming out of it and singing the way that she does on that first version, remember where she kind of, you know, flitted back into her singing voice and did that really smooth gear shift. She goes even farther down and almost, you know, her voice breaks with emotion and the whole thing drops out to total silence. And that silence is a perfect contrast and a perfect setup to the dramatic final chorus. It's one of those changes from the original recording that's remarkably impactful when you actually look at it for what it is. Let's go back to the original recording and listen to that transition between the spoken word verse and the climactic final chorus. But above all of this, I wish you love. And I it's a lovely segue, and like I said, I mean, it's this masterful upshift into her singing voice from her speaking voice. It's a great transition, but it is very different from the 1982 version, which is much more dramatic, because in the 1974 original, there's no actual break in the music. It actually just steadily builds up in this one crescendo into the final chorus, as you know, that backing choir comes in behind her. Now listen to the 1982 version again and pay attention to just how much more dramatic it is in how far it comes down. I mean, dang, how much of a difference can a theoretically small decision like that make of just adding a couple of bars of space, of bringing it down just a little bit more to make it totally quiet, and then having that dramatic entrance? It's a great example of how big of a difference an arrangement can make. I don't know whose decision it was to make that change, but it makes such a huge difference to the overall energy of the song and the impact of that final chorus. It just makes it land much, much harder. Now, of course, that is not the last evolution that this part, this crucial climax of the song would undergo, but don't worry, we'll get to that. For now, I want to talk just a little bit more about singing and about Dolly Parton's voice. Parton is known as a songwriter. She's written so many great songs over the years, I couldn't even begin to list them. Coat of Many Colors, Light of a Clear Blue Morning, Jolene, Good Lord, like one of my favorite songs ever, 9 to 5, and then just on and on and on and on. But she's also quite a singer, and the more I learn how to sing and work on, you know, vocal technique and coming to understand it, the more I admire the way that she controls her voice. So the fundamental concept to understand when it comes to hearing singing with more detail is the break. This is is also called the passaggio, and it's the place where every human voice kind of shifts from one kind of resonance to another kind of resonance. And those two resonances, there are actually more than, there's more than just the one break in each human voice, but the main one that you hear with men and women is kind of the one that I'm going to focus on, that passaggio, that break. And I call that the break. It's basically the break between the head voice and the chest voice. And if you're a really good singer, you also can kind of do what's called a mixed voice, where you sing in between the two, and it's like really Really fluid and you just move through your passaggio with total fluidity. So to do a kind of really rough and ready comparison of the three, it's a little like this. Head voices up here and the mixed voices here. And your chest voice is a lot stronger and you usually talk more in your chest. So there's this strong distinction that you can hear right between my head voice, my really high, you know, what's also called the falsetto, and my chest voice. Those are pretty clearly different. But when you start getting into your mix, and especially if 
if you're a very good singer, the difference starts to kind of blend. And then really you find, and I've even found this just from taking singing lessons, like when I talk, I talk much closer to my mix. And, you know, sometimes we'll use elements of my head voice in my speaking voice. Like you'll hear someone say something like that and they'll jump up into their head voice and then they'll kind of like go down low and they'll say, really? Do you think that's like a good idea? I don't know. And what do you think about that? And when you're talking like that, you can hear I'm kind of going pretty high. Like those are pretty high notes. I'm not singing, but um, my voice is sort of moving through a bunch of different types of resonance to get different characters. Now, any actor, any voice actor, any singer is really good at that. I mean, these people spend their whole lives mastering their voice so that they can do that kind of thing on demand. And Dolly Parton and, of course, Whitney Houston are both very, very good at this. So bringing it back to this song, let's listen to a few places in the original and the 1982 version where Dolly Parton comes in pretty strong, you know, in what's called your belt, your kind of chest voice belt. And then sometimes she'll let it go and she'll float up into her head voice. So that chorus actually has three cool resonance shifts in it. The first is the easiest one to hear, and it's where she just totally jumps up into her head voice. You can hear the break happen. Her voice is just so much lighter. You can hear the resonance shift happen. You know, for a guy, it's a little. it would happen a little lower, but it's when you hear someone like, you, you know, uh, Chris Isaac is the master of that kind of a jump. You'll hear it a lot in R&B music and soul music, pop music. Um, guys will do that a lot. And women do it too. And I think that's like a great example of Dolly Parton doing it really fluidly and really consciously. And it sounds great. So in that same chorus, there's actually a resonance shift that happens a little earlier that's much more subtle and more indicative of the kind of thing I'm talking about when it comes to Dolly Parton singing. She's holding that first note, and then she just ever so briefly goes up to a B, and when she does, she shifts into her head voice just for the B, and then back down more into her chest voice to the note that she was originally holding. Listen for this and see if you can hear it. It's easy to miss, but I hope you heard it there. I'll play it again in a second. But basically just on that B, so you'll hear the note on the A, and then it jumps up to a B just for a second and goes back. On the B, she kind of flips up into her head voice and then flips back down so smoothly and with such total you know, control over her technique that you could almost miss it. But it adds just a little bit of delicacy to the vocal performance. Now, the third shift in that chorus is subtle in a different way, and it's how she ends the phrase. She kind of pulls back into this much lighter mix that still has some body on it, but it's a lot lighter, and it lets her just totally, like, float away. You know, it lets the phrase end on this very, very light note. Right here. That kind of like light touch resonance shifting and total technical control is everywhere in Dolly Parton's singing. It's interesting to hear that people thought that she had too high of a voice and people always kind of thought she sounded too much like a cartoon character, um, you know, when she was first coming on the scene, because I think that like a lower female voice was more the kind of standard that everybody was used to. But when you listen to her sing, she sings so beautifully and so effortlessly. And I think that effortlessness is just, it's the kind of thing that's easy to not appreciate 
appreciate because when we think of great singers, a lot of times we think of people who sing really powerfully and sing really high notes, but it's not nothing to have such good technique that you can sing with just total effortlessness, in particular because it lets Dolly do things like go into spoken word and be so dramatic and bring so many different kinds of emotion into her voice that then just shifts gears through all these different sounds so effortlessly. So with all of those basics established, it is now time to talk about the 1992 version sung by Whitney Houston on the soundtrack for the very bad movie, The Bodyguard. Take it from me, I rewatched this movie last year. It's not a good movie, though it has a really good soundtrack. Now, this version of I Will Always Love You was the lead single off of this soundtrack. It was a massive hit when it came out. It's like Whitney Houston's defining song, and it is, I would say, the definitive recording of the song. And that's not just because Whitney Houston is such a mighty and strong singer. Whitney Houston does have a bigger voice than Dolly Parton. She's got a really big voice, and she knows how to control it, and actually so much of her performance is in that control and restraint. As much as she can kind of unleash you know, and she does unleash on this song at various points. A lot of this recording is very restrained and so beautifully sung. So this 1992 version was arranged by David Foster and makes a number of interesting choices with the arrangement. The first is the remarkable way that this song begins. If I should stay I would only be in your way. That was an unusual way to begin a song in 1992. It's an unusual way to begin a recording now. Completely a cappella, just you and the microphone. You can hear her breathing, you can hear her breath on the microphone. It is just her, and there's nothing else there. There is an amazing amount of silence when you just sit and listen to it. After that first phrase, it's just quiet for like two whole seconds. If I should stay. Like, it's so quiet. Like, if you, if you don't keep the recording going, it's just totally silent. I would only be in your way. So already this version is taking the dynamic contrast that already existed in the earlier versions and kind of blowing them out even more by beginning so low that you can hear everything in her vocal apparatus. You can hear her just perfect technique. She's in this very, very light mix and she's singing these perfect notes that are kind of restrained and held back. You can hear all of it because she's completely by herself. So I'll go, but I know. I'll think of you every step of the way. (laughs) 
Like, oh my God, is there a better introduction to any song than that? Just Whitney Houston in front of a microphone, and it sounds so good. So when it's time for her to come in with the chorus, that first chorus, it's so delicate and beautiful, and the band just eases right in, and goodness. And I... I mean, God, I talk about music a lot. I make this show. It's hard to really put into words how great the intro to this song is, how well she sings it, how perfectly the arrangement matches with what she's doing. And if you want to talk about vocal mix, about singing in your mix, that right there, that first chorus of Whitney Houston singing I Will Always Love You, that's one of the most perfect and beautiful examples of vocal mix I can think of. This is known as a powerhouse performance, but this verse here after the band has come in is another good example of the control and restraint that Whitney Houston brings to this song. She's really brought it back here and it lets her do playful things like what she does right here. Tuning into vocal technique makes it possible to hear something like that. She kind of floats that up there in her head voice, but in this very precise way that, you know, she's already singing in her mix and it's not a really strong contrast, it's just a slight one that adds a little bit of a different color to that one note. So goodbye, don't cry. The performance is full of conscious decisions like that, and deciding to do something like that with your voice is no different than, say, deciding to play a note as a harmonic on a guitar instead of playing it fully, or deciding to growl through a saxophone instead of playing it with a full sound. You know, there are conscious decisions that instrumentalists make all the time with their technique and the way that they control their instrument, and I think it's easy to kind of think of singers as operating in a more instinctual space, because sometimes they do, you know, your voice can be something that you don't think about a lot as you're using it, but when you're a great singer, like Whitney Houston certainly is, and also like Dolly Parton is, you make a lot more conscious decisions about how you're using your voice. Whitney Houston makes so many cool decisions throughout the course of this recording. That's just one of them, but they're everywhere. And once you start listening for those, just those shades of her voice, you'll start to hear them. That is all I'm taking with me. So goodbye. Please don't cry. So before we get into the second chorus, the band on this recording is just a murderer's row of studio musicians. Ricky Lawson is playing drums. He's like played with everybody. Neil Stubbenhouse is playing bass. That guy's played with everyone. He was like Quincy Jones's bass player for a long time. Michael Landau is playing guitar, another just absolute top session guy. So this band is stacked with talent and they sound really good. It's actually funny. The cross stick that Ricky Lawson is playing, you know, that pop that he's getting, it's so exaggerated even from the 1982 version. 
you know, there's still acrostic in the 1982 version, because remember, it's a little bit more poppy than the original, but it sounds like this. So in the Whitney Houston version, the drums are actually playing a similar kind of groove, but the, the acrostic has just got even more reverb on it, and it's just jumping out of the mix. That is all I'm taking with me. So good. So when they come up to the second chorus, this is when Whitney Houston really goes into a more full voice and gives, you know, her first rendition of this chorus in the kind of powerful Whitney Houston vocal style. that jump into her head voice at the very end there. Don't worry, we'll talk about the saxophone solo in a minute. I think there's an important energy happening here, though, with the way that Whitney is singing this, because it invokes a kind of a different feeling than the way that Dolly Parton would sing it. Now, this song is addressed to you. You know, it's called I Will Always Love You, and the singer is addressing you, presumably, the listener. But I think that there's kind of a difference in the way that Whitney Houston sings this from the way that Dolly Parton sings it that changes the way that that I and you function. Now, Dolly Parton had written this song for a specific person, and I think that that comes across in the way that she sings it, you know, definitely in the 1974 version, but also in the 1982 version. It has a kind of a personal and intimate feeling. It feels like she's talking directly to you. Some of that is the spoken word verse that she does, but a lot of it is just the way that she kind of aims the energy of the lyric on the chorus. Now, Whitney Houston's performance, in contrast, I think kind of occupies a slightly more abstract space. This might be partly because of the music video, which I'm very familiar with, I think a lot of people are, where she's sitting alone in a room kind of singing to memories. But to me, the way that she sings this song, it feels stronger in a certain way. She's, you know, more vocally fierce on the performance, but also kind of removed in a certain way. Like she's almost singing to a memory of a person instead of directly, you know, making eye contact with an actually singing to the person that the song is about. It's a subtle thing and kind of hard to break down in the technical way that I usually like to break things down because it's a little bit in the ear of the beholder. But there's just something more of a reverie to it, to the way that Whitney sings the song. And I think that's matched in the way that it keeps escalating. You know, her version of the song escalates significantly higher in terms of energy and intensity compared to the original two versions that Dolly Parton sang. And that intensity actually serves to push the song a little farther away from the listener and into a more abstract space. It's not good or bad. It's just different. And it's pretty cool. It's one more example of how a great song like this can support a bunch of different interpretations that aren't, you know, obviously different. She didn't completely reharmonize the song or anything. It's not polka. It's not death metal. It's pretty close in terms of arrangement and structure and just general tone to that 1982 version. But it's still different in this subtle way that I think is more than just the fact that there's a different singer singing it. Though, of course, that's at the root of the difference. It's that Whitney Houston's interpretation is subtly different. And that that makes the song feel slightly different. Love you. Love you. 
So what can I even say about Kirk Whalum's saxophone solo in this song? Probably just on the numbers, one of the most listened to sax solos ever. Kirk Whalum is a really well-known smooth jazz sax player. He kills it on this solo. I think he sounds great. And it's also a kind of another new element that's introduced. You know, there weren't any solos. There was no solo section. There was no solo verse on the earlier versions, just on this version. To me, that decision to have an extra verse where there's just an instrumental solo, it actually serves to further kind of abstract the emotion that's being conveyed in the song. Because in the Dolly Parton versions, remember, that 1982 version did introduce a harmonica, but it only ever plays behind her as kind of a color instrument coming in and out. There's never a point in the song where Dolly Parton goes away from the song and you just listen to music for a minute. While in this Whitney Houston version, there is. There's kind of a lengthy saxophone solo, and as a result, Whitney just vanishes from the song for a little while and you get this much more abstract and ruminative kind of instrumental soundscape and that I think serves to further insert some distance between her and the listener. She's not even present for a small but significant percentage of the song. I think that kind of thing is really interesting. The way that an instrumental solo in a pop song like this can function as this much more abstract expression of the singer's feelings. When Kirk Whalem gets up there and plays that solo, he's acting as a conduit for the same feelings that Whitney Houston is expressing explicitly in the lyrics. He's sort of playing this sad plaintive feeling He's just doing it more abstractly, and it allows just for a different vector of the same feelings to hit the listener. It's a cool thing to keep in mind whenever there's an instrumental solo in a song like this, you know, in a pop song, and particularly interesting here because there isn't a comparable solo in the first two versions that we've listened to, and the decision to have an instrumental section in this Whitney Houston version does kind of enhance that dreamlike, ruminative feeling that was already there in the way that Whitney was performing it. Plus, I mean, it's a really good saxophone solo played by a guy named Kirk, so I'm on board. So after his solo, Whitney comes in with what used to be the spoken word verse. This is another interesting decision in this arrangement. It's a significant departure from the way that Dolly would do it with that spoken word thing. I definitely understand why Whitney would have decided to sing it instead. It works the way that she sings it. It kind of it, it keeps the song a little bit more on an even keel. It doesn't introduce that kind of dramatic acting and speaking to it. It also lets Whitney stay in her purely sung voice, which is so, you know, has so much presence and is so strong. And in this section is actually where she starts to bring in some of that church singing, you know, the more powerful stuff that she's so good at. You can hear it in the way that she says, and I wish you joy. And I wish you joy and happiness. Yeah, man, that's Whitney Houston. There's really only one singer who can quite belt out a line just like that. And I wish you So remember, the other important thing about this verse, this final verse, is the way that it sets up that climactic chorus. And this was something that Dolly actually refined from 1974 to 1982. Remember, in the 1974 version, she gets into the chorus like this. But above all of this, I wish you love. And And then in the 1982 version, she gets into that final chorus like this, with a lot more drama and a lot more silence. But above all this, 
You know, Dolly Parton established the bar. She made that verse, that spoken word verse that then came out into singing and came into the final chorus. Then she raised the bar by introducing more silence and more drama, more contrast between the absolute quiet at the end of that verse and the dramatic entrance of that final chorus. So what should Whitney Houston do but take all of those elements, the silence, the dramatic contrast, and introduce one more element to make things even more exciting? But above all, There are a lot of great key changes in popular music. Far be it from me to actually try to rank them, but I do kind of think that that is the greatest key change of all time. It's so confident. I think the thing I love about it more than anything is that it's so confident. This song has been in A, we've been grooving through A, these really straightforward A chords, and then just all out of the blue, we're in B. It just goes up one whole step and everything is more intense. I also love that drum hit right before she comes in. It's just this like boom on the toms that just sets the whole thing up. All right, friends, we are changing the key. It's so good. It's so big. It's so dramatic. It's so not messing around. It's just like, here we are. We're doing this thing and it's going to be huge. The band has also changed it up just a little bit here. You know, uh, Ricky Lawson is in on the full snare drum. He's not doing that cross stick anymore. So you can hear the pop has become a more traditional snare pop. There's also actually a slight reharmonization here. The uh, the chords, instead of going one, six, four, five, they go one, six, two, five. So there's a C sharp minor chord that happens. It's not the kind of thing you'd notice unless you were really listening for it, but it does add a slight feeling of differentness to this section right here. So, you know, subbing a two minor chord in for a four chord is not the most dramatic change. They have a lot of similar notes, but it just changes things up enough that it makes the song feel a little bit richer, given that we've been hearing the same four chords over and over and over again to introduce a two chord, which happens, I think, a couple other times in this in this version of the song, just slightly shakes things up and adds a little bit of variety, even if you don't notice that you're hearing it. There's also the fact that the four chord is a really common country music chord, but a two minor chord is a little bit more of a jazz chord, so that's like tying things a little more to jazz and gospel, which this arrangement in general is doing.
couple other cool things about that climactic section. First of all, Whitney is bringing it so hard vocally here that I think that it really underlines that feeling of abstractness that I was talking about earlier. It doesn't exactly feel like she's singing to you in this section, right? It feels like she's kind of singing for herself. She's like realizing that she's she'll always love this person and she's lost this person. And she's singing almost to the heavens, you know? It has this feeling, a more abstract feeling. And the power that she brings to it puts it in that place in a way that I think is really cool. So now when she hits that top note, um, three cool things happen. First of all, <laughs> the bass plays this just little dive bomb. He goes up and then he goes back down. That um, I think is just really cool. Neil Stubbenhouse, good player. And I always love it when a bass player finds a way to just shine for that one little split second. Here, listen for it. It kind of just sounds like boom, boom. He just goes up the neck. The second thing is the way that Kirk Whalum kind of sneaks back in and does the triumphant outro sax fill thing uh, as Whitney Houston holds that high note. Just sounds great. tasty. But the thing I love most about this climax is the way that Whitney sings the note. She hits that note, which is a high F sharp. Remember, we're in the key of B here. And that is quite a note for a female vocalist. It's a very high note. But notice that she does not hit it in her full chest belt. She does not scream that note out or really lay into it or wail on it. She actually hits it in a really pure and piercing head voice. It's so technically proficient, and it's you can really hear her voice working. You can hear the gears turning. She goes up into that head voice, and then she kind of sneaks back down into her chest voice and sings the lower part lower, and then jumps back up to that piercing head voice. It's a, a really cool contrast that you could imagine her singing, instead of an F sharp, you could imagine her singing a D sharp or an E flat, which would be the third of the chord. And she could probably have belted that out. I, I'm not sure. Maybe Whitney could belt a high F sharp. It's pretty high, but um, Whitney could sing pretty high, but she could have belted, say she belted an E flat, which is the third. That note would actually be the same note that Adina Menzel belts at the end of Let It Go, which is a song we've talked about on Strong Songs. Now that E flat and Let It Go is a glory power note, and it offers a good contrast to the way that Whitney sings the high F sharp at the end of I Will Always Love You. Check out how Adina sings that E flat. Now that's a heck of a note, really, really hard to sing, and really powerful sounding, but powerful in a different way from that admittedly slightly higher note that Whitney sings at the end of I Will Always Love You. And it all comes down to one of those vocal choices. This is such a big choice that she makes. She chooses to have the note resonate in that certain way, and because of that, it sounds totally distinct. Singers can get caught up a lot in belting and in bringing their chest voice up really high, pushing it so much, you know, that they can damage their throats and and do too much and go too hard at it. And I think it's actually remarkable that this powerhouse vocal performance by Whitney Houston, which is seen by a lot of people as a very mighty and strong performance, actually, to me, shines the most in its deftness and in its lightness. Whitney Houston definitely has a really big voice and is capable of singing really big notes, but more than words like power or strength 
length, I would actually use the word control to describe Whitney Houston's performance on this song. There is so much control, and it's so beautiful to hear it. The more you really listen for her technique, the ways that she flits in and out of her different registers is just masterfully done and under complete control. Her voice almost cracks at times, but it never fully does, and she takes us with her every step of the way. And then builds to the big climax. And then just as crucially, brings us back down at the end. such a perfect ending carrying us down and then ending with a perfectly controlled ascension Wow. There has never been another singer like Whitney Houston, and there has never been another vocal performance like the one that she gave in the studio on I'll Always Love You, a song written by Dolly Parton that gave her the space that she needed to turn in a performance like that. From Dolly Parton's original recording in 1974 to the reinterpretation in 1982 to Whitney Houston's version in 1992, the greatness of I Will Always Love You lives in the space between those performances and in the countless other interpretations from over the years. It's the greatness of elegance, which could easily be mistaken as simplicity, in the perfect placement of lyrics against melody, in the careful arrangement of the verses and the choruses. It's in the space it leaves for performers to refine and oh-so-subtly reimagine it over the years, passing ideas to one another as their renditions echoed from the 1970s to the 80s to the 90s to today. May it echo for many decades more. That'll do it for my analysis of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, though rest assured this is not the last you will be hearing about either Dolly Parton or Whitney Houston on this podcast. If you like this show, I hope that you'll leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and also just spread the word. Keep telling your friends about it. That's the number one way that I'm finding new listeners, and it's very cool to hear that people are spreading the love. As always, you can support me making this show on Patreon. I am totally listener-supported, so it would mean a lot to me if you would go over to patreon.com slash strongsongs and look in to how you can help me keep making this show. I'm in the process of recording some new outro soloists, though I think I'm also always going to kind of rotate in some ones that you've heard before, just because, hey, you can never hear a great solo too many times. This episode's outro solo is Dan Nervo on the guitar. Hope you dig it, and I'll see you in two weeks to celebrate the first full year of Strong Songs. <laughs>